You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. In this episode, we have an Emerging Markets Portfolio Manager and a Big Data Insight Provider, who both have ESG as a core component of their business, with S-Factor focusing on the social aspects. We take a deep dive into what ESG truly is, how it can be a leading indicator of equity performance, and the inherent risks that come from so-called ESG washing. James Braun is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca. Welcome to Alternative Thinking. This is James Perron with CASA, and today we're talking ESG with Bonnie Linda Bartok from the S Factor and Roberta Lample from Alquity Investment Management. Uh, let's start with introductions. Uh, perhaps you can start, Bonnie. Sure. Thanks, James, for having us on today. A uh, quick intro and background. I've been in social impact for a little over 22 years around the world. We've now worked in over 57 countries. Um, operating, uh, you know, working for the NGOs, then government, then industry, spending most of my time in the mining and oil and gas sector in operations on the ground, working in uh, in the area of social impact, collecting raw data, creating raw data sets uh, for decades. I went on to advise heads of state and major financial institutions on debt facility and M&A structuring due diligence. Um, and then over the last three years, we started the business this business, the S Factor Co., under the McCormick umbrella 10 years ago. Three years ago, we created the S Factor, which became a big data analytics for social impact. So putting the S in ESG and fulfilling a data gap in that space. So we've completely converted into a uh, alternative data vendor now for the ESG and impact space, looking at social impact issues and benchmarking corporates around the world. Great, thanks. So that's interesting. So the ops of mining and um, that sounds reminds me like Blood Blood Diamond and Gold, those types of movies. Is all that stuff true? And then what uh, what sort of raw data sets were you looking at? So to answer your first question, yes, not always, but it does exist on a daily um, and still exists today. Um, uh, I've definitely seen the best and the worst of it around the world. Uh, you know, both from the junior market to uh, developing companies and uh, major producers around the world. So I've, I've seen the whole gambit and at every stage of operation, uh, different uh, intricacies for sure. So because I've been doing this for decades, you can imagine, you know, that there was no data a decade ago. Um, most of it, I would say 90% of the world's data has been created in the last three or four years. And, um, you know, IBM's told us that. Uh, Mike Dells told us that, and it continues to be the case, uh, you know, in terms of digitizing information that's available. So when I say raw data, um, you know, we would enter into third world countries in the middle of, uh, you know, the poorest regions of those countries where people didn't exist as human beings. They didn't have birth certificates. They didn't have IDs. They didn't have land title. Uh, and so wow. it, it literally was collecting raw data and doing and making um, socioeconomic baseline from that in terms of, of subsistence and and uh, demographics. 
Wow, it's amazing. Um, and Roberto, what, what are you doing at uh, Alquity? So at Alquity, um, I'm responsible for global emerging markets ex Asia. And there, what we're doing is we're, we manage uh, five long only funds uh, an mm -hmm. Asia, an India, a Latin America, an Africa, and an emerging and frontier markets fund, which we call Future World. And what we do quite different, differently than our peers is number one, we do not um, uh, manage to a benchmark. Uh, so many of our peers think about investing in terms of overweights and underweights. For us, mm -hmm. it's primarily based on finding the best investments that adhere to our standards in terms of environmental, social, and governance factors. And within that, you know, we're investing in companies that are truly world-class and others that have uh, the minimum standards, but are really have this desire to go on this journey and improve it. And we spend mm. a lot of our time uh, engaging with these companies, uh, coaching them, putting in touch to uh, other peer group companies, maybe from other regions. And we clearly see that the companies with the right value set uh, are the ones who end up outperforming and growing and delivering the, the, the best returns for their shareholders over the period. Oh, cool. And oh well, when I hear no benchmark, I kind of love that because <laughs> I'm always used to the edge, hedge or alternative world where, yeah, just doing a, an over underweighting doesn't seem like you're maybe doing that that much there. But uh, so how how do you figure out your portfolio weightings and size the investments? And is it mostly um, maybe the the size of the companies with re I guess relative to the individual economies? Are you looking more at the larger players or or smaller ones? Um, maybe what's your um, so um, what do you find there? let me start with the second question first, and then I'll get to the, uh, the, the one about uh, the sizing, the portfolio mm -hmm. construction, as we call it. So um, we focus on the whole spectrum in terms of sm size, from small, mid to large cap uh, companies. But what we have find, found that uh, the companies where we believe you can have the, we as a, as an analyst, portfolio manager, and as a firm can have an impact and also where, which are less well understood are more in the small and mid cap oriented area. Uh, um, so that, that's predominantly the, uh, the biggest focus throughout most of our portfolios. And clearly there are some world-class large cap companies that uh, we know are phenomenal compounders and are world-class in terms of ESG. So they will be in our portfolio as well. Now, in terms of uh, portfolio construction, so determining the size that is appropriate in the portfolios according to the kind of uh, risk we wanna have, um, that we work very closely with a, a colleague of ours who has over 25 years of experience in terms of risk analytics. Uh, um, Marnie Uy, who uh, plays a really important role in ensuring that we have sufficient risk, because you don't want to have too little risk in, in the portfolio, but making right. sure uh, we don't have too much risk. And in that sense, we're doing a lot of analysis um, in terms of the liquidity of the company, the factors that, uh, the market factors that drive 
you know, the, the daily um, uh, variability in uh, prices, because at the end of the day, we're managing daily dealing funds. So we have subscriptions and redemptions, and, and we have to manage sufficient um, liquidity in, in our portfolio uh, to be able to meet those demands. Um, but really, I guess one other area is in terms of risk is, is ESG risk. That's an mm -hmm. area where we don't really compromise. So uh, we need to invest in companies that have the sufficient level of transparency and that are delivering the data to us. Hopefully they're making it, uh, they're, they're publishing it, but if they're not making it publicly available, we're encouraging them um, to make the data available, especially when it comes to the environmental and social factors on, on the governance side that data is is pretty well publicized it's it's usually a requirement oh, yeah. from uh, exchanges yes oh great and then so i guess that leads into back to bonnie for specializing in the s factor uh what uh, how do you look at this data and like you say there's there's tons of it and more every day um how do you parse through it how do you figure out what might be an opportunity uh, uh, can you, do you have like a, an algo to figure out who's, who's green, greenwashing or, or what, what's your, what's your process there? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think the biggest complaint from the ESG market today is, is the quality of data that's available. Um, one of the, the first things, you know, we, we've built our methodology over a 10 year period. And so it's really, um, refined now into, into a taxonomy structure, looking at both soft and hard laws. Um, and, and regulation coming down the pipe as it relates to disclosures and transparency and standardized definitions of ESG across the board. I would say the, the social factors are the weakest of the three groupings, and a lot of that has to do with um, misunderstanding what, what it means and, and how to qualify it and quantify it, and that's something that we've been doing for decades. And so um, we do compare company supplied information with third-party data. And there is a very wide disparity, which is really interesting. Um, what is consistent is that there is a very wide disparity amongst what the company says they're doing and what's what's happening in action on the ground as it relates to the social issues. And so, you know, we really do a very deep dive on social. We have 74 social impact themes, which have about 300 indicators and thousands of metrics that roll up into that but ultimately you could categorize it in four sections so from an internal perspective on companies behaviors and, and impacts we're looking at ethics and employees issues mm -hmm. related to that and external to the company which is almost every esg product on the market has completely um uh missed or not included aspects of their external impacts on community and supply chain so um you know, with it, what do I see? Um, there's a lot of zeros and it's not necessarily based on market cap. There's no, you know, mid-market and emerging market data related to uh, specific risk factors in social. We may pass off sentiment as risk. We may pass off uh, geopolitical events as risk and include those in the social basket. That's part of it. It certainly is not all of it. Um, we see a real push for things like diversity and inclusion or women on boards or, or accountability in certain governance areas as it would relate to social issues. 
it's such a small piece mm-hmm. of the behavior of the company over time. So it's, uh, it's certainly something, but it's not everything. And so when we're qualifying, you know, we're looking at materiality is a big topic. So what do you qualify as source content? Is it regulation? Is it soft law? Is it subjective? Is it, you know, we do look at both sentiment and controversies, the difference being, um, you know, um, negative sentiment towards a company that is increasing in terms of volume and content on a specific issue versus an actual regulatory issue like a class action lawsuit for for example so we're, we're measuring both of those but we're also looking at government filings regulatory filings permit filings um, we're looking at ngo content we're looking at um uh you know news uh blogs in multiple languages and so we've got anywhere from 50 to ninety thousand sources informing um, a difference of opinion or or countering or uh, confirming what the company says they're doing in action against each of the issues. Wow. So let's get an example. Like, is there something that you've seen and maybe it's to do with, with uh, the coronavirus COVID crisis or something maybe a bit earlier, like pre that, uh, if we can think of those times, uh, somewhere where you'd think, oh, this is a really good social player. And, but the data didn't really, uh, didn't really bear that out. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, actually. So because we've been monitoring companies, we have a minimum of five years. And then for mining and oil and gas, we have a 10-year historical um, across a range of issues in terms Mm. of benchmarking. And then when COVID hit, we actually were able to pivot in a matter of a week and add a pandemic lens score to those four core areas. So um, employee and ethics, supply chains and community, looking specifically at what how they were managing the issue, how Mm -hmm. they were managing the employee population and or community impacts as it related to their business in their locations of operation. So there you would see the difference. Um, we put out a special report actually uh, a couple of weeks ago. You can, you can find oh, it. Yeah. It's uh, it's COVID social data. So it's social factor data looking at how companies are handling and managing up uh, to the situation in those areas and it looks at the top 45 most popular holdings within the total universe of 108 ESG funds around the world. And uh, there's 15 US, 15 European, and 15 GEM. And what we were able to discern, you know, if we if we broke it down by region or we broke it down by industry, you know, one of the cases that stands out the most is probably in the insurance industry, where you had Hmm. Uh, the difference between, well, it came in waves, right? So first the banks got hit, then the insurance industry, then CPG, and now it's moving into um, pharmaceuticals and retail. And it is coming in waves based on region. It's coming, you know, as different companies and regions are, are experiencing their peak uh, with the pandemic and the issues related to them. It's really right. pushing the social issues to the forefront of the discussion and management. But in the insurance industry, one example would be um, the difference between Kunhan uh, in China, who was able to mobilize 1.4 million people, you know, at the beginning of February to uh, remote working conditions. And they were also able to, I think it was the second week of March, able to um, test over 5,000 people for free with a 90% accuracy for the disease. And then oh, wow. in contrast to that, you could see companies like Zurich, um, uh, announcing at the end of March that they were just going to stop all unnecessary travel um, earlier in the month. I think it was uh, wow. 
Parliament thing, you know, the markets are overreacting. It's just a bad flu. And, you know, what's interesting is we've been able to overlay the S-factor score, the pandemic score, and stock price movement. The pandemic score has high-frequency volume hits, and it actually was able to predict stock price movement five to ten days uh, ahead, both positive and negative across the board over that. So there's a special report out on that. And the ones that were looking after their people and communities were outperforming the others. So it's really wow. Well, when you said insurance, I just thought like they're, they're looking to reduce the uh, the car insurance rates because really no one's driving. But yeah, even just the mobile, I, I didn't realize that it would make take as long to stop uh, the travel because I think a lot of many companies stopped sometime in early March. Um, that's actually pretty amazing. Little it, gems incidentally, uh, James Mari, uh, Ping An is a really important investment in our portfolios, both in our uh, Asia and uh, our future world fund. So, oh wow! Yeah, I was going to say, what, what's uh, what, what, what maybe an example of yours, and and how, and how do you, um, how do you include it with regard to the risk that you saw earlier, and the risk now with uh, with the pan, like say the pandemic risk as we go through it and then emerge out of it, uh, Roberto? How how are you guys looking at that? Yeah, it really it varies from country to country. There is uh, no easy answer to give one blanket, uh, and I think it's it's quite correlated with what we're seeing in the charts. We've all seen the charts of how you know the Koreans are doing such an exceptional job um, in terms of testing, uh, and and China, you know, by you know taking their data and taking it for, uh, you know, that it's the, it's the real data because I know a lot of people are, are skeptical about it. Oh, um, that's good news. Yeah, that they, you know, they've been doing a, a really good job. So we see that those equity markets um, have actually been outperforming. And in other um, markets, it's, um, it's really down to how deep those markets are. So, uh, that's actually brought some opportunities where you've had a lot of fear because of the uncertainty of COVID entering those countries and the duration of it. Well, many equities uh, prices, you know, have gotten uh, hammered down. Currencies yeah. have also depreciated. So, uh, you know, we're we're dealing, we're seeing right now valuations at multi-decade lows for both indices and companies. So. There is a lot of fear priced in. Now, having said that, what we can say is that there are some countries that have done a really, really good job in attacking this and taking mm -hmm. the right measures. I'd say Chile, Peru, uh, South Africa are three that stand out where they really uh, took action and closed down uh, the borders. Uh, right. They, they you know, didn't want uh, foreigners coming in and spreading the disease. And, and the reality is that these countries have a very weak public health services sector. So they, um, you know, in, in the case of Peru, which I know intimately, we have lots of family there, you have, you know, the armed forces and police out in the street and individuals are not allowed to leave their home um, with the exception of having to make the essential, you know, uh, shopping at the supermarket or going to the pharmacy. And now, mm. um, now uh, several weeks later, 
they've actually uh, made it even tighter that men are allowed on certain days and women are allowed on other days and Sundays no one is allowed out. So, so well, that's the, interesting. <laughs> so it's really um, about now they've they've these both Chile and Peru have had the ability to um, use funding counter cyclically to support both the formal and the informal sector. And we've seen that, you know, equities within those markets have actually rebounded. Uh, like, for instance, last week when many of the indices were down, the Chilean uh, indice, uh, uh, index w- was up. So both the currency and there's been some normalization and there's some other factors going on there. At South Africa, on the other hand, um, you know, has also, I think, been doing the right measures. They have other challenges, but clearly many of these indices are at, at multi-year lows in valuation. And I think, uh, you know, that makes it attractive for the long-term investor. Like clearly the best managed companies with the transparency, the strong balance sheets, the right market position, those are, those are doing better than others. And those, are, would you say those are more essentially like, planned economies or, or I want to say, well, maybe yeah, just there's maybe a bit more control of their citizens versus like I look at the U.S. and, and New York. New York has like 10 percent of the confirmed cases mm-hmm. uh, and it's, it hasn't peaked yet. And I, they have some dates on when it is going to peak in that. But uh, no, it seems like is it better maybe to have an economy and, and maybe a people that, that can so-called take the orders like the Korea they actually took people's phones and said, okay, they put up signs in the restaurants and said, okay, for the last three days, if you saw this person, if you were here in those days, you come talk to us and we're going to quarantine you for, for two weeks. And they actually did it. But um, in other economies where that's not as prevalent to have that uh, type of control, um, that, that might be tougher to happen, to occur. Um, do you think there's any yeah. sort of correlation there from the markets that you've seen? Well, partially, uh, I'd explain it. I, I'd say there's a cultural and you know the political economic reality of these countries. The you know central planning aspect of China, when you know the uh, the party decides on a rule, it's you know every, it has to be flawlessly yeah. executed. And probably the homogeneous and the uh, tight culture in in Korea also helped. Also, it it helped that there was one major epicenter, and they were able to isolated quite fast and then went on right. a, a rampage of, of testing and people adhere to it. They, they really probably explained it and, and acted really, really fast, unlike in other countries like in Italy or even in Great Britain and Spain and so forth. I think New York is a completely different issue. I mean, New York is, mm-hmm. you could say, is maybe the um, the the uh, 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 umbilical of the world, right? I mean, everything... If the whole center of the world, you could say, in in certain areas, whether it's in markets and legal services, partially is in New York, and it yep. has everything there. So, um, and the sheer density of people uh, probably has made it quite poor, and and they weren't well prepared, um, I guess. So, it's it's uh, it it's a completely different way of comparing the, you know, countries like Peru. Uh, or Chile or Colombia um, you know, are, aren't as connected with the rest of the world. Um, economically, they are because they are mm-hmm. both together. They're the largest producers and exporters of copper 
globally, really important for for to get the uh, global economy to get going. You know, for you for the economy to grow, you need power, and if you want to generate power, you need copper. Um, but uh, they, I think, they acted quite quickly as well, and and you know, being cognizant of uh, avoiding uh, the the impact of, of the pandemic because of the the weak social uh, um, health services. Uh, the public health services that they have. So uh, I, I'll just add something to the the global discussion there. The what caught my attention from what we were monitoring is both mm-hmm. Toronto, you know, uh, Doug Ford coming out and penalizing companies that were profiteering um, and price gouging, and I think they did this in Japan as well. Uh, so they they immediately started to settle the fear, um, you know, who was selling, who was throwing out. So that will be an interesting play. I think what companies do now will define them for years to come from a company perspective around the world. Uh, there may be short-term gain on, on those who hold all of, the, all of the necessities and the supplies currently, um, but I don't think people will forget over time how they behave during the, during the pandemic. Right. And how about the other side, Bonnie? So, uh, and Roberto mentioned like the, the journey to improve, and I guess you might see that in, in your data. If a company is on, how do you how do you tell if a company is on its way, or whether it's just paying paying lip service, or if it's like a great PR campaign? How do how do you know that that's actually what they're doing and what they're feeling, and what they're putting into their uh, or get into their product or service? Yeah, uh, there's a lot of um, movement toward momentum stocks, so that will be you know where where active managers are. Uh, pushing the agenda on ESG issues and giving the companies mm. an opportunity to turn uh, something around. So maybe they're weak in in health, you know, maybe they're weak in supply chain, but they're really strong in health and safety. So they'll say, well, you know, we'll hold the stock for a period of time. You've got, you know, you've got to meet this criteria within the next two years or clean it up. Um, that would be, you know, that's what we're watching for. And we're watching for the sentiment and controversy external to that. We've got, you know, other companies where, um, only because it was exposed in some way and hit the news did they clo- disclose something material like a fatality at one of their manufacturing sites. Yeah. But what we were able to pick up was that there was 100 emergency service vehicles uh, visits to that same site within the last six months leading up to that death. So why are we not tracking? Why are we waiting for it to hit the news? I mean, they're going. some companies are going to great effort to, to bury information and, and, and you know, try and protect it so it doesn't affect their stock. Um, but we really should be heat mapping this before before it becomes a controversy. And how Roberto, the uh, he's like uh, like I say, you mentioned the journey to improve. Um, how do you uh, how do you look at it? Like you have the qualitative and, and the quantitative factors. Yeah, um, that's that's really important. You have uh, companies who they're smaller companies. They're usually anywhere between you know 500 million market cap to uh, uh, two three billion in terms of market cap um, and I'll give you an example an, an industrial company called uh, Randon in, in Brazil uh, they make rail cars and also the rear part for for trucks and they have an auto parts business and clearly um, you know this is a, a business in where there is there's a lot of manual labor uh, there is a lot of uh, uh, steel and other components. There is welding. So 
Um, it's an area where, you know, health and safety has to be taken clearly, uh, very seriously, waste management uh, as well, and looking at, mm-hmm. um, you know, energy saving opportunities. Uh, so this company measures all of this, but uh, wasn't really, you know, they had a statement that, you know, in terms of sustainability and so forth, but, you know, we encouraged them to um, produce um, there to share the the and, and publish the material that they had on all of these various areas, uh, and fortunately uh, last year they produced uh, their first report, a much more extensive report than they had previously uh, done, maybe four or five years before that. They had stopped because of the uh, the crisis that Brazil went through in 2015-16. Um, and uh, now they're expanding it even further, um, and they're going to be applying the global reporting initiatives. So, you know, I think in, in part because of that transparency, in part because of the recovery in Brazil, uh, we saw up to before, you know, the pandemic hit, you know, the, uh, the share price had uh, more than quadrupled. Uh, in line with the profitability, but I also believe that the uh, equity risk premium uh, was reduced by the overall market. Um, mm. Well, the the pandemic has hit the the shares very strongly, and uh, that's been a great opportunity to uh, to reinvest in this in this company. Where are you seeing opportunities? Like it's maybe something you didn't see before. Or you looked at it before and you thought, well, this might be good. And now it's like, wow, this is a screaming buy because not necessarily the price, mm-hmm. but maybe the, the the new world that we're in and, and uh, we will could possibly be in for the next 12 to 18 months or so. And then as we come out of it. So uh, anything, Roberto, you've seen that kind of came up on your, uh, your heat map there? Uh, yeah. Well, if you take a look at um, the worst performing currencies year to date, that give you an idea mm. already of of where you can find opportunities. So there are currencies that have fallen, they've depreciated about 20 odd percent, whether it's in Brazil, Chile, South Africa, um, Russia, huh, I didn't know that. Uh, Mexico. And there that those are the ones that'll pop up right away saying, wow, we currency environment, we're in an environment where global liquidity is rising. Where do we see the, the cyclical cyclical uh, recovery actually taking place you know uh chile is one area um uh, brazil is another but also uh korea uh where you know we can find mm-hmm. new opportunities there uh china we've been quite positive at how um the currency although you know hasn't really it's 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 a managed currency so it hasn't depreciated yeah. there yeah. but you know we've had some opportunities to uh to invest in that in those countries, in uh, in income shares in uh, in China as well. So um, it's very. It depends from area to area, but uh, in the technology and uh, industrial space, predominantly has been the sweet spot for us. Cool. And Bonnie Lynn, how about from your uh, from your analytics? Anything that's kind of surprised you and looking a lot better now? Absolutely. So I think that the COVID, um, the pandemic situation for us. Uh, has really pushed the ESG conversation and specifically the social conversation to the forefront of um, of value and where they're looking. And I think a lot of the examples that both of us gave today will tell you about the companies looking after their people and communities. Um, it will not be forgotten. 
And what we're seeing, you know, the quantitative hedge funds are just looking for signals and, and ESG is one of them because uh, they're looking to it. The other thing is, um, you know, equity derivatives, equity index derivatives and, and volatility derivatives are starting to integrate ESG, but they don't fully understand what that means from one to another uh, and, and what the source content is, what the methodologies are, what the benchmarks are, what the weightings are between one ESG product and another, where the data gaps are. So there's there's huge opportunity for, um, you know, educating and helping to navigate the volatility through responsible issues. Um, you know, the long, it's not just for the short term, you know, long term, uh, you know, we're seeing asset managers uh, become more uh, activist or engaged, um, uh, actively managing their assets uh, specific to some of these issues as well to try and curb risk. Uh, we've had many discussions with pension funds and endowments and, and now uh, uh, family offices and private equity as well. So it's moving beyond and make your own values-based checklist into a more standardized uh, structure with taxonomies around soft and uh, law, which is quickly uh, converting to fiduciary law around the world in terms of a consensus on what we're talking about when we say ESG. So we've, we've mapped into our product uh, the regulation mm -hmm. in every country, every major country around the world that's, that uh, is pushing the agenda on disclosures. And then, wow, it's a lot of data. <laughs> yeah, it, it is an enormous amount of data. It's just, it's, uh, we spent a lot of time on the structure of the taxonomy, which allows us to structure unstructured content and make something meaningful, meaningful about it. Um, I would say, you know, the biggest risk inherent with that is going to be the ESG washing. It's not necessarily just coming from the companies itself. It's, it's within ESG vehicles um, and strategies as well in terms of their language. On ESG washing, we're we're seeing a lot of that. We're seeing, you know, um, there are, there are companies, for example, where uh, they're you know the chairman's in jail, where there have been you know many instances of uh, corruption or bribery and so forth. And there are some of our competitors. I'm not going to name them, but they'll invest in these companies, even though they say that you know they have an ESG embedded in their process. But you know they will, they they will engage. That's that's their form of ESG. And there are others that um, we found uh, that will implement ESG merely through the discounting uh, method. So they'll add a risk premium, but they will mm -hmm. still invest, um, or maybe they will cap their weighting in the company in terms of overweights uh, in the company, or maybe they will not. You know, they will manage, they're basically somewhat of a, they have a low tracking error. So they're, they're tracking the benchmark very closely and hence they will compromise, I think, uh, and still call themselves ESG. I, I, I believe for, for many of these um, wow. firms, uh, ESG is, is still going through a discovery for them. For us, it's been a core part of the way we manage for the last 10, 11 years. And uh, although you know, we've looked at external sources, uh, I think that has been a, develop, a developing area, but in the emerging market world, we've, what we've seen has been largely uh, a box ticking exercise. And that's why mm -hmm. 
I was going on the ground, meeting with the companies, especially the smaller and mid cap firms. It's really important to, to meet with them, to see, to, to get the data from them and encourage them to, to make it public. And they're actually doing what they say they do. That's, that's the opportunity when the market, you know, has one of these massive corrections, we can invest with confidence because we understand the way they're managed, the value set of, of these companies. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. Cause I think, uh, as I mentioned, there's a, the credit rating agencies have about a 90% correlation between each other. Like if it's double A somewhere, it's going to be pretty much double A the, the other major ones. But in the ESG ratings, it's like 60%. So for managers, there can be some arbitrage there that someone might rate it too high or too low. And you yeah. can take advantage of that. But it's good. I guess it'll, it'll yeah. make that path of becoming more standardized, institutionalized. And uh, and it won't be perfect or a panacea, but it'll be a heck of a lot better than, you can say, yeah. where it is now. That led me to actually my, <laughs> you, you touched on there. How do you do diligence if you can't do it face-to-face? Zoom is a, is a source. Um, having uh, face-to-face uh, conversations is, is challenging in, in, in this, this kind of environment. Yeah. But having them share the data um, is, is the first step. Um, having them uh, produce reports that they're disseminating and making public. Uh, if the um, you know, company is unwilling to meet, if they're unwilling to share anything, you know, um, then we will not invest. When it's a, a new company that we have never inv- met with and clearly haven't seen their operations, uh, in this kind of environment, we'll be reluctant to uh, to invest in. Uh, and Bonnie, is your your data is pretty much just? Do you have a lot of on the on the ground? Like you've gone to probably all seven continents in your life, uh, <laughs> looking at the the mining and such. And but do you do that much of that now, or is it strictly bringing in from the uh, from the feed? So personally, I don't, but our resources do. Um, and I would I would agree with Roberto. Um, we if there if the information isn't disclosed they get an NA or an L or the disclosing information on health and safety only. They only get a percentage of coverage of topics for the social. We do have a couple of litmus tests that we use as well. And we look at, um, you know, we're looking at the constituents and, and underlying constituents within the funds uh, as well across hedge funds and ETFs and, and different um, impact funds and what have you. And we're kind of vetting them against uh, source content is, a huge one. So where's the information coming from that they are relying on? So uh, if it's only company supplied, there there's uh, limitations to that. If it's only sentiment-based or risk-based, it's tagging keyword entities, it's not good enough. We're looking at uh, whether they're benchmarking an international best practice framework on the specific definitions um, across the issues. And we're also looking at, so if I was, if, I, if it's more company specific than fund specific, we, it's really easy to detect um, when they're talking about ESG, whether they're talking about carbon or they're talking about some governance disclosure issues on financial metrics. And the difference is, um, you know, when you start to talk about social, how they define social, how they reference it, how they talk about it. So as soon as they start saying things like it's too soft, it's qualitative, it's measurable, um, or they relate it to something like women on boards, you know that there's no deep dive on social. There's no protectionism. Yeah. It's like, those are the, the tells. <laughs> <laughs> it's the easiest. Interesting. 
it's it, it really is the easiest one. And 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 again to to Roberta's point, like there's a lot of funds that are carrying really suspect companies. What the one that entertains me the most as of late is we put banks at the top of some of these sustainable funds because of their reduction of of use of paper or they've gone paperless or they have these great employee engagement programs. But we don't talk about the trillions of assets that they hold within within their funds. You know, if you if you think about something like DAPL, the Dakota Access Pipeline, you know, five major Canadian banks or four major Canadian banks were named as the largest debt holders in that project. And it was nothing but, you know, a social disaster from an indigenous land protectionism perspective. So there was no so, there was no diligence in ESG. Um, and it's certainly not on the social bent. There was an impact study done, but it was all environmental. And the social was wow. out of it. I mean, they burned a billion dollars before that project even started. And they lost clients. But we're giving them, we're putting it at the top of our holdings of sustainable funds because they've reduced the amount of paper they use. You know, like it's, it's, uh, it is a little contradictory. Wow. Well, that's amazing. No, this has been great. Uh, thank you both, um, Roberto and uh, Bonnie Lynn, for your your insights here. We did a super deep dive. I feel like we could we could keep going and going, and, and I think we we may in a in a future podcast. We'd love to have uh, have you both back on on the podcast later on, uh, either together or or with others, and uh, just keep on this keep this ESG conversation going. Uh, so thank you both, and uh, we'll sign off from here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you for having us.